0: This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.
1: I'm Connor Reed with Words to That Effect, stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. What does the gothic mean to you? I'm standing outside Christ Church Cathedral in the center of Dublin. Think of the word gothic and for many people it will be architecture that springs to mind. Gothic cathedrals in particular, with their pointed arches, ribbed vaults, and flying buttresses. Flying buttress is a great term. There are lots of them right here beside me, helping to distribute the weight of the vaulted ceiling of the cathedral. Christchurch is a Gothic cathedral because it was built in a Gothic style in the 12th century. But a lot of what we see today actually dates from the 19th century, when the cathedral was extensively renovated in a neo-Gothic style. Stroll a few minutes down Dame Street here and you get to a very different building, the Central Bank, which is currently a building site as it's been completely renovated. But growing up in Dublin, the plaza outside the Central Bank was where all of the Goths hung out. Another very different type of Gothic. No flying buttresses, but plenty of black eyeliner, black clothes, surly teenagers, and morbid post-punk music. It's not hard to imagine at one point a teenager dressed entirely in black was sitting around listening to Marilyn Manson's classic goth tune, If I Was Your Vampire, and maybe looking down the street at Trinity College with its own famous vampire connection. One of the university's graduates, Bram Stoker, is the author of that most renowned of gothic texts, Dracula. Another type of gothic, and an association that many will have when they hear the word gothic. Dark tales of horror and the supernatural, whether in fiction, TV, or film. Ornate cathedrals, moros, subcultures, horror fiction. Gothic, it turns out, means quite a lot of things, and they're all connected in one way or another. It Can all get a little complicated, so I think we need a Gothic guide.
0: I'm Dale Townsend, I'm Professor of Gothic Literature in the Manchester Centre for Gothic Studies at Manchester Metropolitan University. And uh, I'm interested in all aspects of the Gothic, but my um, particular field of research is Gothic writing of the 18th and early 19th centuries.
1: So if you want to understand the history of the Gothic, you've got to go back to the Goths who you might recall as that tribe of Northern Europeans who sacked Rome in the 5th century. What we know about the Goths tends to be largely from a Roman perspective, and as you might imagine, this is not particularly positive. As with the Vandals, who also clashed with Rome around the same time, and where we get the word vandalism from, the Goths were seen as destructive, barbarous, violent. This sense became particularly common during the Renaissance to describe art and architecture.
0: In that context, Gothic means something that's a little deformed, perhaps, a little wild, a little uncouth, something that resists the mannered, smooth surfaces and rhythms and perspectives of classical arts, um, something that is in some ways unenlightened, something that is um, associated with darkness, barbarism. And that is how the term circulates negatively in the work of Italian humanists. Remember, they're recovering classical civilization and classical culture. So anything that is anti-classical, like the Gothic, is dismissed and as seen as kind of bad taste.
1: In Britain, though, in the 17th century, this all gets completely upended. If Gothic is the opposite of the beauty and order of classical Rome, then that's fine when Rome is being held up as this ideal. But what happens when suddenly you don't want to celebrate Rome because it's the home of the Pope and Roman Catholicism and your country has just had a glorious revolution and deposed the last Catholic monarch? Well then, maybe Gothic suddenly isn't such a bad thing after all.
0: So what happens here is that through several sleights of hand and rhetorical shifts and some convenient misrepresentations and mistranslations, the Anglo-Saxons and the Jutes, the Kind of original inhabitants of Britain or those who came to Britain um, are misrepresented as Goths and part of the ancient Gothic tribe. And it, it's believed that these Goths who came to England established in Anglo Saxon society early forms of democracy, what we would now call democracy, although in the 18th century the term is kind of freighted with a number of negative meanings. But These um, Anglo-Saxons were Goths and established some primitive forms of government that have persisted right until this day, so the late 17th century believes. And what we are doing in this glorious revolution, in vanquishing the Stuart line of kings and the autocracy of the Stuart line of kings and the divine right of kings that the Stuarts had invoked, all we are doing is re-establishing ancient Gothic liberties
1: So we now have another type of Gothic, one connected with politics and an idea that Northern European democracy could be described as Gothic. At this point, we don't really have anything that we might recognise as Gothic today. There are no dark and gloomy castles, no ghosts or supernatural elements, no horror. As we'll see, this will all soon come. But there is one figure who is particularly important here, William Shakespeare, a man tellingly described as our Gothic bard.
0: Elizabeth Montague calls him our Gothic bard um, in her essay on the writings and genius of Shakespeare in the late 1760s. So what she means by Shakespeare as our Gothic bard is, well, first of all, he's natively English. Secondly, he doesn't derive from a classical tradition in keeping with the uh, anti-classical, anti-Roman impulses of the word Gothic. But thirdly, his plays are replete with imaginary beings, with ghosts, with fairies, with goblins. And you only have to think of plays like Hamlet or Macbeth or Midsummer Night's Dream or The Tempest, etc., to see this concern with the supernatural, uh, this concern with the afterlife, with other worlds, with, with goblins, fairies, uh, imaginary beings. So the term Gothic in the 18th century, although it's not primarily used as a descriptor of a certain brand of literature or a strain of literature, does include intimations of the literary and intimations of the supernatural and horror and terror.
1: So, leading up to and into the 18th century, there are a lot of often wildly contradictory ideas emerging. Gothic is bad, it's destructive and barbarous and uncivilised, it's not Roman in a classical sense. But it's also not Roman in a Catholic sense, so maybe that's good. Maybe we need some barbarism. Maybe all that classical art and architecture is just too European. We need something that is natively English, like the Gothic, with those goths, now don't dwell on this for too long, from Germany. So there's a lot going on here. But luckily for this podcast narrative, there's one figure around whom a lot of this comes together. Horace Walpole. Walpole is a fascinating character. He was the son of what we would now call the first British Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole. And as you might imagine, he was well-off, well-travelled and well-educated. Horace Walpole also became an MP, but he's best remembered for his other pursuits in art, architecture and letters. He was a voluminous correspondent with opinions on absolutely everything. And he wrote letters to practically everyone of importance in the 18th century. He was also an art collector and antiquarian and a writer. He even had his own private printing press. In the history of the Gothic, though, he's remembered
0: for two things, a book and a building. Let's start with the building. He buys a very, very unprepossessing house called Chop Straw Hall in Twickenham on the banks of the Thames, just outside London, as a summer residence in the late 1740s. And slowly, over the next three decades, starts to to coin his own verb, ugly verb, I think, gothicize it. That is, turn it into a testament to the medieval past or one particular version of the medieval past. So he's not the first exponent of the Gothic revival in architecture of the 18th century, but he is probably the most prominent One of the reasons for this is simply because Walpole loved his house and his house is extraordinarily well-documented. He was a man of money. He could commission artists to reproduce, to print, to produce paintings and watercolours and sketches of his house, and there are numerous of these. He also writes and publishes at his own private press, which he establishes at the house that he in time calls Strawberry Hill, his own kind of guidebooks to the house and distributes these to his friends, etc. So Strawberry Hill, this gothicized house, becomes this magnificent, important tribute to Gothic architecture, which he is reviving kind of against the grain of received tastes in the 18th century, being the great age of Palladianism and Neoclassicism In architecture, but also in literature.
1: Not a very gothic name, Strawberry Hill. Seems a little cheery to me, but anyway, I've never been, so it's definitely on my list of places to go next time I'm in London. So that's the building. But before we get to the book, I want to take a very quick break to tell you about two other podcasts. The first is a show which is connected to an episode I did a while back all about dinosaurs. I really loved making that episode, but it was, alas, just a single episode. If you feel like you need to know a lot more about dinosaurs, then I would recommend you check out I Know Dino. We're Garrett and Sabrina from I Know Dino, the Big Dinosaur Podcast. For over a hundred years, dinosaurs have captured the imagination of kids and adults. In the wild west of America, paleontologists fought over dinosaur discoveries in the bone wars. In Victorian times, authors wrote stories about dinosaurs on Venus, Mars, and in lost worlds. Today, a new dinosaur is discovered almost every week. And we cover every one of them on our show, I Know Dino. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and at iknowdino.com. I-K-N-O-W-D-I-N-O dot com. The second podcast I want to tell you about is a brand new show on the Headstuff Podcast Network called The Late Night Nod. It's so good. It's got original music and improvised interviews with guests from this fictitious world of arts and culture like listening to a great late evening radio show that suddenly gets very surreal. And the music is unbelievably good too. Check it out. The Late Night Nod features original music and improvised interviews with guests from a fictitious world of arts and culture.
0: Each episode weaves a conversational thread through tales of inspiration, excess and heartache with some of the creative world's best known personalities
1: that you've never heard of. Join some of Ireland's most talented actors and comedians as they step into the world of the Late Night Nod. So back to Horace Walpole, the owner of an outrageous Gothic mansion. In 1764, he decided to publish a story, The Castle of Otranto, a work that's generally agreed to be the first Gothic novel. It's set in a gloomy castle in medieval Italy. There are secret passageways and family secrets, a father lusting out his daughter-in-law, a noble hero, terrible punishments. Crucially, though, it's also got the supernatural.
0: He also, of course, writes what historians of literature tend to regard as the first modern Gothic novel, which is The Castle of Transo, which is a short story sometimes funny, sometimes camp, always outrageous romp through a castle, sometimes said to be Strawberry Hill, or I don't think that is a particularly convincing reading of the novel, um, involving the supernatural, introducing a ghost, here, novelly, to prose fiction, taking the ghost from the Shakespearean stage largely, but also from the romance tradition of medieval and Renaissance literature, and injecting it as it were into short prose fiction, because Walpole says, you know, the novels of Richardson and Fielding have become dull. They've cramped up the powers of the imagination. We are in the the shackles of a terrible realism, and we need to invigorate modern literature. He says with the imaginative capabilities and capacities of ancient romance. And part of that is introducing the ghost to modern fiction.
1: Interestingly, and initiating another tradition of Gothic fiction, Walpole didn't publish the text under his own name, but as a translation of an Italian text from medieval Italy. So this isn't a modern text, it's not an English text, this is simply a translation of an ancient discovered document from medieval Italy. The novel was a huge success and so Walpole decided to publish a second edition the following year. This time, though, he put his name to it and he wrote a new preface explaining what he had done with the first edition and defending his literary hoax. Most importantly, in a subtitle to the second edition, he calls The Castle of Otranto, for the first time, a gothic story.
0: Well, I think what is remarkable is to chart the differences in response to the first and the second edition. When readers and critics thought that this was a relic of the ancient medieval past, the ancient Gothic past, although the term Gothic doesn't feature anywhere at all in the first edition, not even architecturally when Walpole is discussing the castle of Otranto itself, but when people were able to pass this off as as, as an authentic medieval document... The response was appreciative, and they saw it as a kind of relic or a trace of Gothic barbarism. Quite different from our enlightened modern present, but fascinating. Remember, we're in the the great epoch of antiquarianism. So as a kind of antiquarian fascination, it inspired great admiration. But when Walpole reveals himself as the author, and by implication, the fact that this text has modern origins, the reception changes almost overnight. And the same critics who celebrated the text for the first edition denounce it as some sort of monstrous aberration that has manifested itself in the present moment. How how could culture possibly produce this Gothic devilism, one critic says. Uh, so the reception changes enormously across the first and the second edition.
1: The reception may have changed, but that's not to say the text wasn't widely read and extremely influential. 30 years later, in the 1790s, there was a flurry of Gothic texts, Anne Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Udolpho, Matthew Lewis's The Monk, and Walpole himself also published another Gothic work he'd written in the 1760s, The Mysterious Mother. These and many other 18th century
0: authors owed a lot to the castle of Otranto. Otranto remains enormously important there, even though I think that Walpole's influence is eclipsed by Anne Radcliffe in the 1790s, who is the greatest, uh, most innovative, most influential, most highly paid, most successful, most widely read Gothic author of the late 18th century. But even in Radcliffe, there's very much a sense of Walpole's legacy living on and it being a continuation of Walpole's legacy, despite her own innovations in the Gothic form. But another very important Trope that Walpole bequeaths to later Gothic writing and one that is still very much around today is that indecision between fact and fancy. Is this really a discovered document, an artifact, a relic from the medieval past, or is this a modern confection? You know, you only have to think of modern horror films like The Blair Witch Project, where that tension is still very much in place. Another crucial trope, of course, is the imperiled heroine. And you think of Isabella running through the subterranean dungeons of the castle of Otranto, being pursued by her lascivious father-in-law, Manfred. And that trope of the imperiled heroine becomes crucial to women's Gothic writing in the 1790s, not only Radcliffe but a host of other writers. It becomes crucial too to Matthew Gregory Lewis in The Monk, and still very much in place in the 19th century and even today. You think of a film like Panic Room, with the trope of female incarceration, with the trope of anxiety, with women being locked up and abused and threatened. That all goes right the way back to The Castle of Otranto*.
1: And then, of course, there's the architecture. I began this episode by talking about a Gothic cathedral, and Gothic literature and architecture have always been very closely connected, from Strawberry Hill onwards. Haunted castles and other medieval buildings, ruined abbeys and churches, architecture which inspires terror. Ruins in particular are important, as they were connected to the Reformation, in which Catholic buildings had been destroyed and deliberately left derelict. So architecture shapes and structures Gothic fiction, as in the chapels and bedchambers, secret trapdoors and claustrophobic corridors of the Castle of Otranto. But it also inspires Gothic fiction in a much wider sense. There were debates at the time around what type of architecture was more likely to prompt awe oh, and terror and flights of fancy. The classical buildings of ancient Greece and Rome or the castles and cathedrals of medieval times.
0: Almost invariably, Gothic writers are of the opinion that Gothic architecture, by which they mean mainly the ruins of medieval buildings, are the most suited to inspiring imaginative creations. And this is why they take their bearings from ruins in the landscape. So a ruined abbey becomes culturally important in the late 18th century as testimony to England's deliverance from Catholicism, as they see it through the English Reformation. So what happens in these ruins is Gothic writers project fancies or visions of medieval life into them, peopling them with ghosts, with evil friars, with dreadful imaginings, in order to, I suppose, culturally in the present moment, distance Britain from this benighted Catholic, unenlightened past. A benighted Catholic, unenlightened past, but one that is still very much attractive because of the frisson of otherness, of horror and terror. One that we can't quite let go of. So that is what happens around abbeys. The same happens around ruined castles, many of which had been ruined and slighted during the English Civil War. So These are, if you like, signs of trauma. These ruins are signs of trauma on on the British landscape that become recuperated for aesthetic reappraisal and uh, in that process become muses to, to Gothic writers.
1: There is a much, much longer history of the Gothic, from the huge popularity of Gothic tales in the 1790s through to texts like Frankenstein or Edgar Allan Poe's work mid-century Penny Dreadfuls to late-century tales like Dracula or Jekyll and Hyde, and on to the many, many Gothic subgenres and offshoots of the 20th and 21st centuries. And don't worry, there are WTTE episodes on lots of these areas, so go have a listen if you haven't already. Gothic has remained a central and crucial part of our culture for several centuries now.
0: One of the well-rehearsed, perhaps over-rehearsed cliches of Gothic scholarship is that gothic always arises in moments of cultural crisis be it the french revolution be it the fantasy of the late 19th century be it anxieties around war and climate collapse and immigration in our own cultures and gothic always helps to kind of punctuate work through embody the anxieties of any particular culture at any particular time That's anxiety model is severely limited, I think, because Gothic is a lot more than just an articulation of cultural anxieties. But nonetheless, there is something to say about that way of understanding the Gothic. So there's always um, the sense in which Gothic is a kind of dark mirror to what is happening in any particular historical presence at any particular moment in time. And I think for that reason, it is in the Gothic that we we, uncomfortably recognize ourselves. It's in the Gothic monster that we see so many of the fears of our own cultures represented, misrepresented, inverted, and made to stand up as examples of virtue and vice. So Gothic is, is, is enormously important, even though it's not written in a, in a mimetic representational mode even though it it draws on fantasy and and romance, it is one in which we can catch glimpses of the so-called real all the time. And that's one of the fascinating um, paradoxes of, of Gothic fiction and film from the 18th century right through to the present day.
1: Sometimes when it feels like it did to Walpole all those years ago, that we're in the shackles of a terrible realism, the Gothic can be truly liberating. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. A huge thanks this week to Professor Dale Townsend. He has written a massive amount about so many aspects of the Gothic, so you can check out all of that on his academic site, which I'll link to. He's also running a project at the moment called Revenants and Remains, which has all sorts of events, including creative writing workshops inside Gothic ruins, which sounds amazing. I've put a link to that as well on the WTTE website, so all of that is at WTTEpodcast.com. You'll find full transcripts, images, links, and lots more on the website too, as well as all of the various places you can follow the show on social media. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network and if you would like to support the show you can join Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes, discounts on merch and live shows and lots more from every show on the network. Artwork is by Matt Mahan and the show is recorded in the podcast studios Dublin. And that's it, see you next time.